Hi guys, happy Halloween. Today is always a little bittersweet for me because I love the whole month and I love the decorations and I love candy. You can ask anybody. There's always candy in my pocket. If you ever need a Reese cup, just come find me. I'll have one. Um, but I'm just not quite ready to be inundated with Christmas for the next two months. And I know that's what happens starting tomorrow. But I wanted to help you by releasing a little Halloween special with spooky stories that have absolutely nothing to do with Kentucky, uh, full disclosure, but uh, it's certainly keeping with the style of the show, and I think, I hope, you'll enjoy it. First, I want to tell you all about the origin of the word nightmare because it kind of seems like a random word if you don't know where it comes from, how it came to mean a bad dream. So the root of the word is from the Old English word mare, M-A-E-R-E. And there are different spellings and pronunciations, Mara, Mart. Um, Many different countries had a version of this word to define this creature. And so you can have a nightmare in German, Nachtmar, or Dutch, Nachtmurri. But a mare, as we might pronounce it today, was a little demon or goblin, usually thought to be female, maybe sent by a witch or a sorceress, that would sneak into your room at night, camp out on your chest, and give you these bad dreams. There's an old Norse tale from the 13th century that goes like this. There was a Swedish king, Van Landi, and he was killed by a mare, a horse, which was conjured up by a sorceress after the king had abandoned his wife. So the sorceress sicks this mare on the king while he's sleeping. And while he's asleep, the king cries out that this nightmare is riding him. It, quote, trod on his legs so they nearly broke and pressed down on his head so that he died. So if if you were a victim of the mare, you might first feel this heavy weight on your feet and lower legs or maybe creeping up your arms. But no matter where it started, it would end up on your chest, and you would feel this suffocating weight on your chest as you tried to breathe. And this would be paralyzing. You wouldn't be able to move or do anything about it. And the visions, the dreams people would have during this mare visit, came to be known as mare rides. And to put a stop to these mare rides, there were some things you could try. You could put your shoes down by the side of the bed and then make sure that your laces are facing the direction where you're sleeping and then make sure the toes are facing the door. You could put something made of steel in the bed with you. And then the other thing is these mares could sneak in through the keyholes in your door. So you had to plug up the keyhole with something, like wad up a piece of paper or whatever, shove it in the keyhole so the mare couldn't get in. But if it already made it into your room and it was sitting on your chest and you needed to get it out of there, you could bribe the mare. You could promise it a little gift and uh, it would have to come back the next day and get it. Which seems like a short-term solution if you ask me, but that's what it said. So... Today we know that it isn't a little demon on our chest that's causing our bad dreams, but sleep paralysis, which affects somewhere between 5 and 50% of people at some point in their life. Um, 
I've had bad dreams, but I don't, they've never been severe enough to be considered sleep paralysis. Um, but apparently it's horrible. Quote, sufferers can see and hear without being able to move or speak. And some people who experience this state also report feeling a heavy pressure on their chest and a sensation of choking and the sensation of a dark presence in the room. So next time you're falling asleep and you feel that heaviness crushing your chest, just promise the goblin you'll bring it a present and it'll leave you alone. Next, I want to switch gears and talk about mirrors for a little bit. It was the Romans who figured out how to create a mirror from polished metal surfaces. And the Roman people thought their gods were watching them and observing them through their mirrors. So if you broke one, it was viewed as extremely disrespectful to the gods. And as a consequence, the gods would punish the person who broke the mirror with lots of bad luck. So when mirrors started being made with glass instead of metal, as you can imagine, they were broken way more frequently. But if you broke one, it wasn't really the end of the world because they also believed that your body renewed itself every seven years. So after those seven years, you would get to start fresh. Um, So I'm sure you all have heard seven years of bad luck. That's where that came from. Uh, Some of them also believed that your soul could get trapped in a mirror. I've heard that before. I hate to even think about it. That terrifies me. No, thank you. We've always had kind of a weird relationship with mirrors. Uh, They're great for horror films. They're great for building anticipation. Everyone's had that feeling. I mean, I know I've had it where you get up in front of a mirror. Maybe you're like alone in a hotel room or something and you just get this feeling that you're not alone and something's going to pop up behind you, it's terrifying. Um, And over time, we've used mirrors for all kinds of weird stuff. Um, Bela Lugosi, you know, Dracula, he had one that became kind of famous. So he allegedly used his mirror to try to contact his dead wife, but it didn't work, and instead... He invited something, quote, unwanted and otherworldly. Eventually, that mirror got passed on to a new owner, and that new owner was murdered. And the owners after that reported seeing a dark entity reflected in it. And then some even said they were attacked by something that came out of the mirror. So that's not good. Um, But you could do fun stuff with them, too. Um, It was mostly women who started using them to summon the face of the man they would marry. So that could be exciting. There was some ritual, and uh, you really had to get it just right. And if you did, then you would see your husband's face, right? The downside was, if you were going to die before you got married, instead of a man's face, a skull would show up in the mirror. Um... That's never happened to me, and I've played Bloody Mary, and so that's good. Um, Bloody Mary, I'm sure you all have played that too. When I was a kid, all we had to do was stand in front of the mirror and say Bloody Mary three times. That was it, and then something crazy was supposed to happen. But it never did, and now I think I know why. I wasn't doing it right. 
So according to the internet, what you're actually supposed to do is light a candle and then walk up some stairs backwards while carrying the candle in one hand and holding a mirror in the other hand, a hand mirror, which, by the way, sounds like an accident waiting to happen. Don't do this at home. Um, okay, so originally when you did this, it was to see a husband's face. Um, and then in more modern days, it's morphed into doing this in a candlelit room and saying Bloody Mary a certain number of times. Why did this become a thing? And who is Bloody Mary? Well, a couple things. If you, stare, if you stare into a mirror for a long period of time, things might start to look weird. Especially in a dimly lit room, your mind might start to play tricks on you. And some say you can put yourself into a hypnotic state, sort of hypnotize yourself into seeing something that's not really there or feeling like something is there with you. So that's why people think, you know, kids started doing this. But then who is Mary? Well, there's a debate about that. It could be Mary the First of England. Uh, she earned the nickname Bloody Mary for having over 300 religious dissenters burned at the stake, so she seems like a good candidate. There's also Elizabeth Bathory, who is a fascinating character. She was Hungarian, and she had an estimated 650 girls tortured and killed, and then they say she bathed in their blood. The only thing is, her name wasn't Mary. But you know what? I wouldn't ex exclude her from the running just for that. There are other women who people say Bloody Mary was based on over the years, but those are really the two big ones. Those are the front runners. So enough about mirrors. Let's do one more before I get out of here. Another story about a woman named Mary. I have a slight fascination with Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Her life story is kind of a strange one, and so I want to talk a bit about her life and one very interesting thing in particular that we'll get to. But she was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin in 1797 in London. She, she had very smart parents, but her mom died when she was young, and her dad remarried. Um, her dad was really smart, but kind of a lousy businessman, so he tried to start this publishing company, but it never really took off, and so he was always borrowing money from people, and the only reason he didn't go to debtor's prison was because his friends kept bailing him out, financially. But aside from all that, I think he was a good dad, and he, he really wanted to make sure that his children were educated. They had full access to his library, he tutored them, he took them on educational excursions. And then in 1812, he sent Mary away to live with, quote, the dissenting family of the radical William Baxter. And it was her time there that inspired her to start writing. And also, somewhere around this time in her life, she met Percy Shelley. And Percy was a radical poet-philosopher who was friends with her dad, and he also happened to be estranged from his wife at the time. Uh, and for a while, Percy Shelley had been paying off Mary's dad's debts. And when he stopped doing that, 
Percy Shelley and Mary's dad had this big falling out. And so Mary started seeing Percy in secret. And they would mostly meet up at night in a graveyard near Mary's mother's grave. And that's when they fell in love. She was 16, he was 21. And the story goes that she lost her virginity to him in the graveyard. And of course, her dad was furious and didn't approve, but they didn't care. In July of 1814, they ran away and took off for France, and they moved around a lot. They went to Switzerland, and this was all at the beginning of World War I. So the, the world was not a happy place. They were seeing some pretty difficult times playing out during their travels. So eventually they decided to go back to England. But uh, by then Mary was pregnant and they were broke. And her dad was not willing to help them in any way. So they found a cheap place to live and they lived there with Mary's stepsister, Claire. And while Mary was pregnant with Percy's first child, first child with Mary, she was pretty sure that Percy was also having an affair with Claire. In principle, Mary believed in the concept of free love, but in practice, she was not having it. In 1815, when she was still just 17 or 18 years old, she gave birth to a baby girl, but it was two months premature, and that baby died. Um, After that, she got pregnant again, and Percy inherited a good amount of money from a grandfather, I think, and so they started traveling again, and then she gave birth to a healthy baby boy named William. And then the next highlight in the Mary Shelley story is the one you all probably know. When the Shelleys are sitting around a bonfire at Lord Byron's villa, uh, Lord Byron was having a child with Claire, and Byron says, hey guys, let's, uh, let's do a challenge. Let's, let's all write a ghost story and see who can come up with the best one. And Mary was frustrated because days were going by and she just could not come up with a good story. And then finally, this idea about reanimation came to her, and it kept her up at night. And so she started writing what she thought would be this short story, this little ghost story for Lord Byron. But that story turned into Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, and it was published anonymously in 1818. But today's story isn't really about that. So shortly after she published, Mary's sister was found dead of an apparent suicide in a hotel room. And two months later, to the day, Percy's estranged wife Harriet drowned in a lake in Hyde Park. And that looked like a suicide as well. Afterwards, Percy tried to get custody of his kids from his marriage with Harriet. And the courts told her that he would have a better chance if he was actually married to a woman who could help take care of them. So... In December of 1816, Mary and Percy were officially married. The courts found Percy morally unfit for custody of his kids after all of that. Uh, But soon after, Mary gave birth to a daughter, Clara. They still weren't doing well financially, even after getting that inheritance. I think they'd kind of gone through it all. They were both getting sick a lot, and debtors were knocking on their door. So they moved again, and this time they went to Italy. And Mary's stepsister, Claire, went with them again. And Claire left her baby with Lord Byron, and then the three of them kept traveling. They were very nomadic. 
Unfortunately, both of Mary's children died while they were in Italy, which sent her into a deep depression. She'd now lost all three of her children, plus a sister. They had their fourth child, Percy, in 1819. Mary was writing during all of this. She was always writing. I mean, Frankenstein was not by any means her only work. But she was sick a lot, and Percy was out chasing other women, and they still weren't making a lot of money. So Mary got pregnant again in 1822, but she had a miscarriage, and she lost so much blood that she almost died. Now, Mary Shelley's biography is a long one. We actually know a lot about her. But what I wanted to mention for this Halloween episode today was actually Percy Shelley's internal organs, one in particular. So the Shelleys had rich friends, right? They were hanging out with Lord Byron. And together, I think some of the friends chipped in and bought this sailboat. So on July 1st, 1822, Percy and two other men set out for a sail. They planned to be gone for a couple days. They were just sailing down the coast. And on July 8th, they started their return trip, but they never made it. There had been a bad storm, and 10 days later, their bodies washed up on the Italian coast. Mary was, I think, 24 years old when her husband died. And you know, he wasn't the best husband, but he was her husband and she loved him. And his death was just another tragedy and she'd already had so many in her short life. Percy Shelley was cremated, but his heart would not burn. It's believed now that this is because his heart may have calcified due to an earlier bout with tuberculosis. But no matter the reason, his heart would not burn. And so his friend, Leigh Hunt, who was around for the cremation process, was like, okay, I'll take his heart. But eventually, it was handed over to Mary. His cremated remains were buried in a Protestant church in Rome, but not with his heart. Mary kept that heart for herself. She kept it in a silken shroud, and it's said that she carried it around everywhere she went for years and years. And after she passed away, the heart was found in her desk, wrapped in the pages of one of Percy's last poems that he'd written before he died. Eventually, the heart was buried in the family plot when their son, Percy Jr., passed away in 1889. Okay, get on with your day, enjoy the Halloween festivities, and please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. I'll be back soon with more Kentucky-related content. Until next time.